0: Howdy, it's Sean, here to let you know that Rework is coming back this fall. Now, the show is going to be a little bit different going forward. I'm breaking it up into seasons, and in this first season of The New Format, I'm going to be sitting down with Basecamp co-founders Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen to talk about Rework, the book. Each week, we're going to dive deep into a single essay and discuss what's changed and what's stayed the same in the broader business environment over the last 11 years since the book was published. I'm working on new episodes right now, and we're looking at early September for Rework's triumphant return. In the meantime, I'd like to share this conversation with Jason and David I recorded a couple months ago. Long before they wrote Rework, long before 37 Signals, and certainly long before Basecamp and Hay, both Jason and David had had brief stints at venture-backed startups during the dot-com boom of the late 90s and early 2000s. These experiences helped form a lot of the ideas that would later make it into Rework and that we'll be discussing in this upcoming season of this podcast. So let's start with David, who got into this scene, like a lot of young men, by writing about video games on the Internet. The first gaming
1: website I worked on
0: was maybe 94, 95.
1: That was just me doing it on my own for the fun of it. I continued to do that through high school. And then after high school, I worked Partly on that and partly at like a web design shop where I did such fun things as cold calling for a while, which was oh, um, shit. quite the experience <laughs> trying to sell companies on getting a website. This is back in whatever, 97, 98 or something like that. Just calling people up. Hey, sir, would you like a website? <laughs> the wildest thing was that we actually sold a couple like that. Imagine just picking up the phone one day and some dude, out of nowhere is calling you, asking if you want a website, and you go like, (laughs) oh, yeah, actually, we should get a website from this stranger on the phone. But I was clearly not cut out to do that. Anyway, uh, I continued to work on the gaming website stuff as well, and then I landed a job at a portal, which was basically like the one-stop destination for everything. Like, it's the one place you go. It's your start page. It's it's all these other things. Anyway, this portal had a gaming section. So I essentially rolled in all the work I'd been doing for years in advance into a paid gig. It was actually funny. I had a dual mandate. One, I was going to do the gaming website. Two, I was responsible for the jokes section.
0: Oh, (laughs) David. (laughs)
1: literally like taking submissions from their customers, sending in jokes and putting (laughs) them into this huge database where someone could look up a joke. At one point, I I probably knew like 2000 jokes. Anyway, that kind of brings us all the way up until about 2000 when this web development shop sees what's going on in the US, see what's going on with the dot-com boom and like thinks, Oh, do you know what? Incubators, that's the thing. Essentially, these startup factories right? Like let's put together a shop that has a bunch of people that can just start a bunch of startups really quickly. And then we'll share some infrastructure and we'll all get rich. The incubator was called Pray 4 This incubator was started by the people who were running this web development shop, which ended up getting sold to one of the largest, I don't know, international European advertisement companies called Leo Burnett. Uh-huh, yeah They bought it for like, I don't know, 40 million crowners or something, right? $5 million. Not exactly like by modern standards, this huge windfall. But the the founders of that shop did did well enough. That was the atmosphere, right? At the same time as this uh, incubator was going, I'd had my stint with the jokes. And I was like, all right, let's, <laughs> <You were done. laughs> let's do something else. And then I jumped over to this other thing, uh, the Prey 4 incubator, where we
0: worked on this new gaming site called DailyRush.dk. This brings us to about 1999, which is the year that Jason Fried and two partners started a little web design firm called 37 Signals. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. While David was managing a database of jokes, Jason was doing a short but memorable stint at a startup called Quokka Sports. That's Q-U-O-K-K-A. It's sort of a cute little Australian marsupial that has an adorable permanent smile. In fact, pause this show right now and go look it up. You won't be disappointed. Okay, now to Jason Fried. This was
2: in the late 90s. This is before I started 37signals. This is, I think, 98. I was a freelance web designer and knew some people at this company called Quaka Sports in San Francisco. Quacka was a company that made its name designing really interesting, progressive sports-related sites. So the main thing they were known for was a site called Around Alone, which is a, a sailing race where people race literally around the world in a sailboat alone. So what they did was they outfitted some of the people who were sailing with, I think it was satellite phones at the time, and they could transmit the data back via satellite phone, and they would include, I think, pictures perhaps, and some audio, if I remember correctly, but it was pretty extraordinary. And they plotted them on a map around the world, and you could see their journal entries and hear their stories. It was groundbreaking. And the designers who were working on it were, just amazing people. They're looking to hire more designers. So it was like a contract thing. I think it was something like three months or four months. Were you living down there or were you still in Chicago? No. They brought me out there and they put me up in a hotel, which was not cheap. Paid me... I want to say it was something ridiculous like 10,000 bucks a week or something. It's just a ridiculous amount of money. When I started there, I think I was like the 70th or some odd employee there. And by that time I was gone... There was hundreds of people there. I literally had my own card table when I started. And then like a few weeks in, I had a buddy sitting next to me and then (laughs) a buddy on the other side of me. And then people I didn't know packing in, you know, it's like this, this sense of, of feeling claustrophobic. Like everything was closing in on me physically because everything was actually closing in on the company as well. Even though in many ways it seemed like it was, it was more expansive because More money was coming in, more people were being hired, more gigs were being won. And then you had athletes coming through and you you had like big wigs from NBC coming through. And you were sort of in this place where like this was the center of the sports world online. But on the inside, it actually felt very claustrophobic. And that in my head, like financially,
0: the walls were closing in as well. At the time, and well, this part hasn't really changed, startups like Quokka Sports seemed to be more interested in growing as fast as possible and not as interested in worrying about things like making enough money to stay in business. Financial projections were basically company executives writing fan fiction about their own startups. Over at David's video game site, they were also falling right into this trap.
1: I remember us sitting down. We hadn't even started the fucking thing. We hadn't built anything. And we sat down in front of a spreadsheet and started extrapolating how much money we were going to make in year (laughs) four of our international expansion. Literally counting chickens before hatching. It it was almost like one of those hiring tests where you go like, how many golf balls could fit in New York City or something stupid like that, right? Where you just start extrapolating out from these bananas, bunkers numbers you're pulling out of your ass, right? I remember sitting in that Excel spreadsheet thinking like, we're just making shit up, aren't we? Like this has no basis in anything at all, but I I guess that's what we're supposed to do. And then it kind of just became clearer later on. Oh, it's because those are the spreadsheets you'll use in your presentation with investors to get them to lend you a bunch of money. And like it didn't really matter. Whether it was real or it wasn't real, the point was simply just to come up with something that was like vaguely credible such that you could dupe others into giving you money. (laughs) And we made this nice curve that had like this international expansion that was going to start in Scandinavia and then it was going to take over Europe. None of that shit ever happened, of course. What did happen was I worked on this project for... About nine months or something like that. I, I built it. It was actually one of the first projects where I really dug into code myself. It was probably the project where I kind of transitioned from just having this big understanding of programming to like, okay, I sort of have a journeyman's understanding of programming now with PHP. At the end of it, we launched this thing. I think we launched it in like spring of 2000 or something like that. I hired one additional person at our little company. Wasn't we weren't really making any money. I mean, even though in in retrospect it wasn't exactly a like a bullshit business, right? Like, hey, you write about video games and you run advertisement, like that's a thing. Or one of the big campaigns we landed at the time was the launch of Quake Three in Denmark. We came up with essentially an esports tournament, like let's get the best players together and they'll win prizes and all this other stuff. So that was kind of fun to be part of esports, like whatever ten. 15 years before it actually sort of turned into something. But we were just so ignorant of the whole setup. Like, how do you even do that? And it was all wrapped in this, like, we're not just doing a magazine online, right? We're doing a startup. And that was also VC-backed. It was actually not VC-backed. It was fucking worse than that. One of the two people who started this, who was this former McKinsey guy, total straight shooter, got seduced into the startup world, took out a fucking loan personally guaranteeing it. Everything went bust, didn't make a thing and he for I don't know next 10, 15 years were paying off that money while working as a senior executive at, at other companies. It was just like, who the fuck signs
0: as a personal guarantee for a fucking incubate? That was how crazy those times were. Back at Quaka Sports, where Jason was working as a contract web designer, they had some real revenue, but they were also swimming in $37 million of outside funding. They landed some of these contracts, you know, like Fox would pay the money and NBC for the Olympics would pay the money. And so they got
2: they got paid, but they didn't get paid enough to support hundreds of, of employees. Putting your contractors in a hotel for three months. Right. And and just like anything you wanted, you got, basically. And and then they raised a bunch of money. At the end of the day, like it all blew up because dot-com crash kind of happened. They'd grown too fast, too quickly. The economics simply weren't there. It's not like the Olympics happened every year. He had to land a lot of work to pay for this and just didn't happen. And I just saw so many decisions being made on the inside that made no sense at all. Now, if you lived in that world and you had a dis- you know reality distortion field around you, you'd be like, no, no, this is just the new way things are. But I, I didn't come from that world. And I, it, to me, it was just silly. So They're paying me silly money, putting me up in a silly place, giving me silly responsibilities. It, f- it felt like a parade, actually. Like a parade is temporary. It's like exciting. Everyone's cheering, but it's moving. And it's, it, it ends. It, it starts and it ends. And that's
0: kind of how it felt, actually, the whole leaving time. Leaving a trail of trash play. in its wake. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like you don't want to have to clean up after that. So, Jason returned to Chicago after his short stint at Quaka and co-founded the company that would become Basecamp. David eventually left his gaming website and landed at another startup called K-Put. Ultimately, I ran out
1: of passion for games. Like at one point I was just like building this site, building this CMS system to write about like this, that's fun. The game part, mm, I don't know. I I don't want I don't want to sell advertisement. That is what this is, as a business at least, right? I, I worked for another <laughs> startup that was also funded in 2001 that did community software, like the forums and chat systems, funnily enough, much the same as, <laughs> as what we would end up selling with Basecamp. And I worked there for about seven months too, which was also just wonderful experience. And, and I draw many of the anecdotes on poor managerial decisions from those seven months as well. But it was VC funded. Yeah, It was VC funded. What was interesting about that was it wasn't actually apparent to me until several months into my employment that this was the case. Where did you think the money was coming from? My understanding of all of that was so shallow at the time, in part perhaps because my understanding of where the money came from with Prey4 was always very fuzzy, but then on the other side, thankfully for Caput and the founders there, that money all came from investors, which then became sort of clear in the final stages of that company when, when the dot-com bust was happening and the investors were getting really antsy. And all of a sudden there was this extreme pressure to close these big deals and no one wanted to close big deals at the time. And the thing was, I mean, maybe it doesn't sound stupid now given enterprise software and prices, but it, to me it seemed very stupid. And we were selling essentially like a shitty chat system and a shitty forum system for like a million dollars. I don't even understand how this works. And the way it works was, of course, it was all enterprise sales. I did get a sweet trip to London for a week trying to implement the chat for a UK television station. I want to say like there was all these interesting, fascinating experiences, but most of them were just these startling cases of how not to run a company, how not to treat employees, how not to base your business. It was all just this educational material in the negative space, right? All the shit not to do, which which turned out to to leave really deep, important marks on both the way I saw the world and the way I wanted to be
0: in business if I was going to be in business. Did you ever, as a uh, employee, ever feel that like pressure maybe from your bosses to, to raise money that we need to get the next round of funding or else, you know, Kaput is, I hate to make this joke, is Kaput. <laughs> right. Not so much at uh, at Kaput,
1: but I had these other experiences where I kind of knew what the game was and what they wanted. Overwork is a great example. So I was working at the portal there for a while, Right. And I wanted a bigger monitor, just because I did. I don't think there was any particular reason. There was probably because <laughs> I wanted a bigger screen to play Quake on, right? But I had already understood at this point, like how to speak to management in 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 the language that they would understand, right? So I went to to the manager of the firm and said, like, I forget the exact bullshit reason I came up with, but it was total <laughs> bullshit, bu- bullshit reason that essentially amounted out to like I would stay longer at work if you bought me a bigger monitor, right? Sure. And it was just like. That was the unlocking, like you could see, I was just trying to lock with all the arguments and you're like, eh, it's not really registering. It's not real registering. He's not going to give me the money. He's not going to give me the money. And then I say, I'll stay later at work and then click,
0: the lock Ooh, Productivity. <laughs> right, exactly. Productivity, right? These are the kinds of things we hear about a lot with companies that are under constant pressure from investors. Overwork is a huge one. And Jason definitely could feel that at Quaka Sports. People are just burning
2: themselves out, working extraordinary hours like Tuesday and Saturday were no different. It was just days, just days to fill time. Yes, extraordinary things were built. It wasn't easy work, but it, it didn't need to be a hundred hour week kind of work. It was frenetic. And like any collection of frenetic, crazy energy, like it, it burned itself out. It's a short lived, high impact environment. And then it sort of can't last. How did that manifest sort of on your level? It manifested physically. It was. The sense of not having any private space to work in. At Quaka, when I first started, I had, like I said, a, ca- a card table, basically, which wasn't really that much space because it was backed up against a hallway and everyone was kind of walking behind me, which means like everyone's looking over my shoulder while I'm working. It was very uncomfortable. You know, work in progress is not always pretty work. When we built the, the base camp office, the last one, we had way too much room, but that was actually partially intentionally. The way we built the desks, no one... Looked at someone else's back. We butted them up face to face, but had dividers, and then no one was looking at your back. So, like
0: you were backed up with, was it Michael? My back was to Jonas's back, and then Waylon was to my front.
2: Right. So you and Waylon were looking at each other, but you couldn't see each other
0: facing each other. But there's a divider, right?
2: Yeah. And then Jonas was facing the other way. And as we added more desks, as we added more people, we never put them side by side, and we never changed that orientation. We just did squeeze the space. But the space we squeezed was back-to-back space, so you still never saw anybody, or no one's ever looking over your shoulder. You know, so I, I did think about that. That was important to me because that feeling that I had at Quaka was extremely uncomfortable. And I, I don't know, some people might be might
0: not be bothered by working in close quarters, but I, I I am. If you hadn't have worked at Quaka and you started a web design firm, let's call it 37 Signals, without that Quaka experience, would you have taken venture capital funding?
2: I, it's easy to Say yes or no now, of course. Right. Of but, course. But, but no, I mean, no, I, I I wasn't interested in that, especially at that point. My mind was already made up. Like that that just wasn't the direction I was going to go in anyway. It wasn't sort of for me. Chicago is not the center of that kind of world. So I'm not exposed to I wasn't exposed to it all the time. I was never kind of raised that way. I don't know. It's like, just be frugal. Don't spend more than you have. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. That's just how I've always been. And so I'll attribute that to my parents. They probably just instilled that in me. And that's kind of how I've always built things. And when I met met up with uh, Ernest and Carlos, my first two partners in, in 37 Signals, they had no interest in raising money either. Like for Carlos, who'd run his own graphic design business for 20 years or whatever it was at that point, he'd done it himself too. Like venture capital wasn't even like a thing he thought of, it wasn't even an option. Ernest, though, had come from a big website company called Organic Online, which is venture funded, I'm pretty sure. But we never even, for a second, contemplated what it would look like to take money or why we would even need to. It just wasn't even a thing we considered. In
1: many ways, those two, let's say three experiences, working at the portal, working at the incubator, and then working at this Capewood company, which really only, in total time, was like, what, two years or something like that? I learned more in those two years by very far and away then I would learn and going to Copenhagen Business School for three years and getting a, a bachelor's degree. It's funny because that's the way memory works, right? Like, that's a very short amount of time in sort of absolute sense, but it looms incredibly large in formative experience for me. It was just such a compressed um, experience. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful for it because. I would then go to Copenhagen Business School and I would learn a lot of things that were sort of intellectual. And I remember I was having these discussions about like, oh, what do you do if you have an underperforming product in your portfolio of products? So you'd look up in your um, Michael Porter book, who's this uh, famous business book author, and you would like, oh, here's the answer. If you have an underperforming product, you should cut it and reinvest your resources in. And it was just like, it was almost like a game-like thing. And I had the Good fortune of being able to square that game-like environment against actually having lived through it. Like, why were they acting like this, right? It was, oh, okay, I see. Because we didn't fucking have a business, because it was all castle in the sky, because it was all hockey stick made on an Excel spreadsheet before we'd even written a fucking line of code. We'd plotted out our entire
0: invasion of the European market. I mean, what the fuck? Has startup culture changed? What, what, what do you see as the, the differences now? Or do you see people making the exact same mistakes? I think the value system is very much the same as it was.
1: How do we get rich by dominating everything as quickly as possible? The language and, and the euphemism has evolved to be more palatable. The tactics have gotten much more refined. So much of what was going on at that time was like sort of figuring, how do you even do this? How do you create the website? Uh, What are the strategies you use? In some ways, all that has been established into patterns and the price of computing has fallen dramatically and
2: all these other things. Everybody at the time, and this is even more so the case today, was just like, this was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, like getting a tech job or working in web design was just the thing to do flat out, period. There was no other thing. If you want to do something cool, this was it to do. And in San Francisco, that's all anyone ever talked about. Now it's even worse. Back then, there was a sense of excitement. Like there was this a handful of companies that were really onto something. That it was the beginning of something big, and that was exciting to be part of. I and mean, there's no question about it. Now all of that euphoria seems to be like you know should I buy Bitcoin? Should I buy Ethereum? Should I, what's this NFT thing? Should I get one? You know, and that's not to say that they are the same, but that's the same feeling. The other thing that's similar though is is the fundamental drive of venture capital, which is to create only one kind of company. Which is a big, massive, fast-growing, almost unsustainable company, kind of like the Earth is. Sort of like well, we're on an unsustainable path. We can't keep doing what we're doing. It's going to crash at some point, or it already is. You know, like it, it's the same kind of thing. It's like as long as there's just enough fuel, we're going to keep burning it, and that's kind of what venture capital does to a lot of companies. Now, in some cases, it works. Obviously, there's some companies that only exist today because of that, but but so many more that don't and would have made great. Smaller companies or mid-sized companies that couldn't be allowed to stop there. Venture capital back then and today are still building the same kinds of companies. Do
1: you still keep in touch with anyone from, from those days? It's such a small community in Denmark. Like everyone who were around at that time went on to do other things. Um, some people went on to work at Skype in the early days. And the founder of Capehood went on to found Sendesk, uh, which we've used at Basecamp and, and uses Ruby on Rails. And um, it caught the rocket. It made it through the needle's eye and became one of the, whatever the odds are, one in a thousand that someone who takes a seat funding ends up being a publicly traded billion dollar company. But they did. The main programmer I built Daily Rush with, which then went on to, I mean, I l- worked on Daily Rush for maybe nine months. That website just closed earlier this year, actually, after a 20 year run. Oh, wow. So that's not bad. No, it's not bad at all. I mean, especially for like a gaming journalism site. Exactly. It was running the original database from like 2000. You could go back there and find news about games that I had written like 20 years earlier, but it was finally shut down, sort of tragically so, because the guy I had hired at the time to help me ended up taking over the site and he died of cancer. He was sort of the incarnation of the opposite of that bullshit spreadsheet. Like he just ran it as a one-man business. Right, like I'm going to sell the ads. I'm, I'm going to pay for the servers, and, and he ended up running it for 20 years. And there are some of the other people too. I mean, I've talked to the people who work at Caput over the years. It's like a time capsule. The people who came out of that came out, I think, in many ways, with some really interesting, strong skills that were forged in that environment. Even though so much of it was such bullshit, there
2: was still a depth of talent on the building side. No one really since I think has done anything as interesting actually, as Quaka had done, even to this day, really. I mean, there's new stuff that exists today, but it doesn't feel like it's that far away from what Quaka was doing 20 years ago. And that's what was such a bummer that it had to die this way. There's two people who I do sort of occasionally keep in touch with. Ammon Haggerty was a designer who I, I found always to be just a fascinating guy. He lived in a houseboat in Sausalito. Like, he's so much better than me, but he was so humble and kind of took me under his wing to a certain degree. I really appreciated that. and then Josh ohm, who also gave me a lot of confidence early on, um and like someone who I've always admired as well, he worked there. Yeah, so there's two people there that i that I sort of kind of keep in touch with, or if I saw, I would say hi to for sure, and we we would catch up at old times. There's a number of people who I remember. There's one guy named John Johnson, this Australian guy who was just a load of laughs, just like the most positive, fun, one of the most entertaining, exciting, warm people I've ever I've ever known. I wish I'd kept in touch with him. I don't know whatever happened to him. I don't know where he is and where he went. John Johnson, if you're listening, please write in. I'll ask Josh or, or Ammon if they know where he is. And the, the, the owners were, were nice. They were wonderful people too. I had really great conversations with them. Everyone there was, was, was quite special actually. There's a great uh, article written up about this because there's some really good background there and s- probably some slightly more accurate details. And I think I'm, I'm mentioned in it too. So I'm, I'm in the oral history. Or it's now the written history, but um, I think Basecamp's mentioned in the article. if I do remember correctly, but
0: um, check it out though. It's a, it's a cool piece. Will do. It's a cool piece. Yeah. Rework is a production of Basecamp. Our theme music is by Clipart. We are on Twitter at Rework Podcast, and please stay dialed into this frequency for brand new episodes coming this September. You can also find all of our previous episodes at Rework.fm.